Hello, welcome to Orion Talks. My name is Suat Chubukchu. I'm an assistant professor at Towson University and a senior fellow at Orion Policy Institute. We have a special guest today, Travis Rain. Welcome, Travis. Thank you, Suat. Thanks for inviting me. Sure. Um, Travis, you are the survivor of the 2017 Westminster attack in London. And during this incident, five people lost their lives and more than 50 people were injured. And you were 19 years old at that time, and you were severely injured during the attack. So I don't want to go into the details of this horrific incident, but I really want to know how this incident affected your life. Of course. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, I mean, I was 19 years old at the time, so I had very little, uh, if any, knowledge of terrorism, really. Um, it certainly wasn't a topic or, you know, essentially any area of security or sort of radicalization wasn't really a topic that I had much knowledge on. Um, and so, you know, being involved in the attack really sort of threw me in the deep end in that sense. Um, but the effects are, you know, astronomical. I mean, they, they, there's the more obvious aspects of it, which includes, you know, physical injuries. Um, and for certainly, you know, many people who are affected by an attack, often psychological injury as well. Um, and, you know, that was no different for me. I mean, the physical injuries I received were quite widespread. Um, fortunately, I was able to make a full recovery. But the range of injuries I received, which included, you know, a broken leg, um and fractures to my hand as well um meant that so much time afterwards um we're talking months and months was spent in physiotherapy uh, and in physical treatment so there's the more obvious aspects of the of the sort of recovery and the impact it has on your life there and the physical um you know the the, the things you can visually see um but there are other aspects as well i mean for me and I know this is something that many other survivors often um, wrestle with and sort of debate after being involved in something like this as well. Um, I certainly felt that I couldn't just sort of carry on uh, with my life as if nothing had happened. Um, I have every respect for, for those who can, um, but I thought I had to, you know, learn more about these issues and essentially sort of educate myself and where possible educate other people about, you know, the realities of terrorism. And that for me is, is probably the most uh, visible, uh, I guess, change to my life that came after the attack because I can't envisage any other scenario now where, you know, I'm not involved in this area. And I think it opens your eyes very much to um, these issues, to the sort of issues that affect people who are being radicalised and, you know, the, the general sort of swaths of extremist groups that are operating around the world. Um and this has really been essentially an area that I've ended up dedicating myself to over the past few years um, <clears throat> and certainly will be for some time to come yet. So I think that's the most obvious impact for me personally. But certainly, you know, there are a range of other impacts that can affect victims after an attack. And certainly my um, experience was no different. These might be financial in nature, the fact that victims can't work. Uh, they might be... Uh, psychological, there may be issues around um, legal representation, access to justice, all of these things that, you know, may seem obvious on the surface, but until you're in that moment and you're, you know, affected by an attack, you just simply, I think, 
as a sort of average Joe, you know, a regular guy on the street, you just aren't aware of them. Um, so it's, it's, it really is, you know, the best way I would describe it is being thrown in at the deep end because um, in a split second, you know, your life changes. Um, and I always say to many other victims that, you know, we, we, we can't change what's already happened to us now, um, but we can decide what happens next. And I think that's where, a lot of people go through this sort of growth after an attack where I know people who've gone on to change careers entirely, uh, not simply just to work in, say, counterterrorism like I have, but, you know, there are several people I know who, for example, have changed their specialism to, say, psychology and have gone into working in psychiatry because they want to better understand the mind and the way that people respond to trauma. So there are a range of different ways in which... Um, you know, these incidents can really impact a person. Oh, yeah. Um, so thanks again so much uh, for your service and amazing work. So you have become a kind of activist. And uh, when I search your name and I see you have um, become a member of the organization Survivors Against Terror.org, which is a nonprofit network of survivors of terrorist attacks, and also uh, you are the director, uh, I believe it's the founding director of the Resilience in Unity Project. So where you record the stories and the testimonies of people affected by terrorism. So why do you think it's important to be heard by others uh, for survivors and the victims of terrorist attacks? Well, there's a, a number of reasons behind this. And, you know, part of uh, the work I've been doing really with the Resilience in Unity Project has really been a sort of evolution from, from the work I started out in this area doing with Survivors Against Terror. Um, I mean, we set up the group, um, SAT is the sort of acronym we use to describe it. We set up the group in, in early 2018. Um, there was about eight of us at the time. We've been able to grow that now to roughly around 300 survivors, British survivors of terrorism, who all wish to use their experiences to advocate for improvements. Because I think it's important that you know, we remember too often people can see uh, issues of their terrorism and counterterrorism, but also of victims' rights as purely, you know, something that just affects other people. And I think, you know, that is the, the biggest sort of thing that we have to overcome when it comes to discussing terrorism with the general public. We have to overcome that feeling that they just won't be affected. Um, that's certainly what I felt before the attack. And I know many others did as well. So these improvements that we're trying to get in place uh, in support for victims will, whether we like it or not, affect everyone. Because, you know, I, I know that certainly now with the benefit of hindsight, and I'm sure you'll agree, um, I would much prefer for those support services to be in place before they're required um, than for us to require them and them not be available, which is often the case at the moment, sadly. Mm -hmm. So that, that is one aspect of why it's so important to share these stories and these testimonies of people affected by terrorism. But I also think there's a, a sort of psychological argument to be made here and a, a, a well-being aspect in that for many victims, if done correctly, sharing their story can actually be quite cathartic. It can be quite beneficial. And certainly when it's done in a manner that they feel is benefiting others, not just themselves. So whether that's raising awareness of issues, as we've mentioned there, that might improve things for other victims who, who may be impacted uh, by future attacks. But also in the case of like what we're doing with the Resilience and Unity projects, as you've mentioned there, um, 
sharing these stories as an element of counterterrorism, as a counter narrative against the sort of misleading truths that are often, you know, the, the, the sort of, uh, how should I say, the, the, the misleading narratives that are spread by people trying to radicalize others, particularly vulnerable individuals um, who often, you know, hate preachers are targeting. And it's these real life stories that I think can cut through some of the rubbish that's out there. Um, because there's not much that can stand up against a real story of someone who's been impacted by anything, really, not just terrorism, but certainly in this scenario, when we're talking about, you know, often, um, you know, and I'm sure we'll touch on it a bit later, but often as academics as well, because I've, I've just started my PhD recently, um, we kind of get a little bit bogged down in the sort of the literature and, and you know, the methodology. Um, and when you hear that that real life story, it completely cuts through everything and it, it just sort of puts things in perspective. So I think there's that aspect as well. And I guess the final thing I would say about sort of storytelling um, and the importance of sharing testimonies, that's the fact that from a policing perspective, from the perspective of, of those of us who, you know, really want to prevent future attacks, there's no better um, tool in our arsenal than those stories of people who've been affected. And I think, understandably, sometimes we're a little bit concerned about including victims because, you know, we don't want to offend people. We don't want to cause uh, further distress. But often the only reason that more victims aren't involved in, in trying to share their story and raise awareness of these issues is because they simply feel they haven't had the opportunity to do so. And that's why we set up the project, you see, because we wanted to give any victims who, who, who wish to, you know, get themselves out there to share their story for good, to give them the opportunity to do so and to amplify that voice. Because often, you know, when we when we talk about terrorism, and again, I'm, I'm sure it's something that we'll touch on a little bit later, but the media cycle can be very, very quick. And, you know, you really often, you only have maybe a week or two after an attack, if you're going to speak out. And often, of course, that week or two after an attack is when it's most raw. And it's the time when most victims probably don't want to speak out and don't want to share their story. And after that, it can be quite hard to, to be given the platform to actually speak out. Um, so I think we're trying to, I guess, reevaluate that and, and trying to give victims an opportunity to speak out whenever it's to their suiting and not just when the sort of spotlight is on terrorism for that moment when an attack has just happened. Yeah, so I agree with you that, you know, we give so much importance to like perpetrators, ideologies and the, the reasons behind terrorism, but we pretty much kind of ignore the victims. Um, so from the academic side, for example, like in my own work, I'm also look at incident reports of terrorism. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have like many, many variables and explanations of the groups, but mostly victims are just numbers, right? These are the fatalities, yeah. these are the casualties, that's it. Um, and also on the media side, um, uh, you know, we see so many reporting about the, the manifestos and the, the perpetrators, but the victims mostly kind of ignored as well. Um, so I just want to ask a kind of related question with the media because you uh, briefly mentioned about it. So as we know, there's this kind of symbiotic relationship between terrorism and the media. Uh, for media, if it bleeds, it bleeds, right? 
reporting sensational terrorist incidents attracts more attention and larger audience for the media. And it's mostly in the breaking news. As uh, former UK Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher said, you know, it's a kind of oxygen for terrorism as they seek mm -hmm. for publicity and they're going to expand their um, um, their audience. On the other side, terrorism, um, um, on the other side, you know, the, the terrorists really kind of spread the fear through the, through the media. So there's a kind of a, I'm not going to say media help terrorism, but it's a kind of unwitting agents for uh, for terrorist organizations. So as a survivor, survivor of a uh, tragic incident, so how would you describe the media and their reporting? And do you see media as a responsible reporter, especially when it comes to the terrorist incidents? Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Because, you know, one of the things that I think we also forget about is the fact that our media, um, whether they intend to or not, essentially have become celebrities in the 21st century because, of course, they are the faces that are delivering the news and we see them every day. Um, I think the difficulty there is that often, you know, as a result of that, there can be some sort of detachment from, from the reality sometimes um, of, of what is affecting these people. And I think we have to remember that you're right in terms of the perpetrators, but certainly in terms of victims as well, actually. Um, the vast majority of victims will have no media training because they will have intended to go their entire life without ever speaking to media. Um, nobody knows they're going to be a victim terrorism nobody expects that um and as a result of that often those people that are thrown into the spotlight by no fault of their own have no training whatsoever um and i think there certainly needs to be an element of responsibility when it comes to the media and how they treat those people affected by terrorism um I'm not saying you know and i always have to foot footnote it with this but i'm not saying that it is um you know universal across the board I'm just talking about some of the experiences I've had. I've had some, some good, some bad, as I'm sure many other people have. Um, but there needs to be an element of responsibility, I believe, for those journalists to understand that their actions also impact the victims. Um, not just in the way that they report, although that's certainly the most obvious aspect, as you've indicated, but also the way in which they approach uh, the development of, of their news programs after an attack. Uh, many victims, myself included, after they've been in an incident, often face media intrusion. Um, mm -hmm. Journalists trying to find where they live or trying to get into the ward where they're, where they're being treated in hospital. Um, journalists potentially using photos of them uh, from social media pages without their consent. Um, but on the more insidious side, you know, journalists harassing people. Um, People who who might even, and this is a real case I'm speaking of from, from other victims I know, but people who their family actually might be notified of the death of a loved one from a journalist rather than from an official source, just because that journalist says, can you tell us about your, your dead family member um, who had no indication before that, that they'd, they'd died and they weren't still injured. So there's a certain element of responsibility that needs to take place here, I think, and not just in the way that they treat them, but as you've said, in the way that they report as well, because 
we look to our media, certainly in the UK, even more so because we have this expectation, rightly or wrongly, of the BBC as the sort of independent arbitrator. Um, we, we look to the media for guidance, and especially in a time of crisis, um, certainly, you know, we look to those faces and names that are familiar. We look to our leaders, we look to the media. Um, and if the media doesn't recognise the role that it can play in either inflaming tensions or assisting community cohesion after an attack and assisting the recovery of those impacted, then we end up in quite a dangerous situation because they have a lot of power. Um, and so they need to be, I think, very conscious and, uh, you know, prescient about the fact that they have that power, um, which is sometimes the case, but mm -hmm. often isn't as well. So it's a difficult beast to deal with. And certainly any time that we have tried, uh, you know, raising awareness of, um, of media intrusion, or other issues mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we're oft we often face a lot of barriers um uh, because again there's this power imbalance how can you get the media to act on these issues when they hold all the cards you know you entirely rely on them to raise awareness of these issues um so it's very difficult sometimes to implement these changes uh in what can sometimes be quite a guarded profession okay um excellent so um you know, it's it's a horrific thing, you know, experiencing all these things. And also when you look at the United States, where I live now, as we see being a victim of uh, gun violence is much more likely than being a terrorist incident. So this also applies to many countries. And I want to ask you, what are the lessons learned from your experience and your from service that um, can be applied to the victims of other type of violent crimes? Mm -hmm. It's a great question. Um, there's a couple of things that come to mind. I mean, certainly um, when we talk about violent crime, I think one of the things that we need to make clear here as well is the differences between uh, indiscriminate violence, as we might see in uh, a terror attack and targeted violence, um, which we may also see in a terror attack, but in a different manner. Now, by targeted, I mean, of course, uh, you know, a robbery, for example, would be yeah. very different to, say, a mass shooting. But when you look at uh, a mass shooting, or um, I'm just thinking so, because the US has very different classifications of these crimes than we do in the UK, um, and often what, what the US might, uh, might address as a hate crime may well fill the threshold for terrorism in the UK. Um, but certainly if you look at some of the incidents that have happened in recent history of the US, whether they're hate crimes, whether they're mass shootings or school shootings. What I would say is that the ideology, the methodology behind it may be different, but the impact on those people who are affected is often very much the same. The trauma response of the body to what they've experienced is often very much the same. And I guess in terms of, you know, you asked about advice, one of the things that was most beneficial to me personally was actually the realisation um, about probably about a year or two after the attack. And I think it came out of conversations with other victims, actually. But often 
when you've not been affected by you know an act of uh, of, of, of violent trauma um unfortunately you know you would hope that most people never will be affected by an incident like that but until you've been affected by something like that often a lot of the conversation and the popular discussion around say mental health um deals with it as as an illness or or uh, intrinsically negative and i think one of the 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 most beneficial things that i realized after the attack was actually that with all due respect you know the way in which your body is reacting is natural um a very unnatural thing has happened a very unnatural thing has occurred has impacted um your life and the way in which your body reacts that's not a negative that's instinctive um and reframing the way in which we think about these issues i think is really important in the very term victim for example i think most people hear the term victim will probably feel instinctively sort of a negative um perhaps even sort of feeling of pity um and it's the reason why you know many survivors i've met prefer and it's actually the reason why we didn't use victims as well in in survivors against terror when we would sign the name um many people use the phrase survivor because it seems verner but for those people who are familiar to these incidents and to the people affected can have a big impact on their psyche afterwards and i think that's certainly the same for victims of mass shootings of uh, hate crimes and also of terrorism now in terms of other violent crimes i do think there will probably be quite different uh, requirements in support that they need and certainly you know it's one of the things that we constantly are are balancing here in the uk because of course you know the way in which we support people affected by terrorism is often modeled on our support for other crimes and it's not always transferable um there will be very very different needs um dependent on the individual nature of each incident and i think it's important that we remember that Um, okay yeah uh, so and also I, i know that you are involved in the <clears throat> um prevention of youth radicalization um and would you please tell us more about your experience and what you're doing um sure well i um as i mentioned at the, at the start of the the podcast um i sort of after the attack after i'd sort of got off my crutches um about would have been about six months after the attack that I was on crutches and a walking stick. And it was roughly about two years I was in physio afterwards. And during those two years of physiotherapy, if nothing else, I had a lot of time to think, um, a lot of time to, to sort of mull over what had happened, but also to um, consider these issues a bit more sort of deeply. And um, as was mentioned at the start, I felt, you know, very strongly that I, I wanted to learn more about the these issues i wanted to understand not necessarily understand terrorism because i don't think that's possible but to certainly understand which groups uh, and ideologies um were motivating these incidents what the methodology behind these incidents was and why it's such a you know prevalent issue in today's society um and that led me pretty much gradually into working in this area now i started out by essentially just sharing my story um with anyone who'd hear it usually local schools mm-hmm. uh, local universities 
um, places where, as you've mentioned, um, often, you know, people uh, maybe at risk of radicalization because they're vulnerable, um, certainly going through puberty and things like that that can affect one's mindset. Um, and gradually became more and more involved. Now, in, in towards the end of 2018, in November 2018, I joined Counterterrorism Policing, uh, which is the UK's counterterrorism apparatus, um, as an advisor. And that was a sort of ad hoc position. They'd call on us whenever uh, they needed advice on community engagements, um, issues of prevent, which I'm, I'm sure you'll be familiar with as a programme, um, faces a lot of attention. Uh, from the media and from other sources, um, but also the other aspects of the contest strategy that we have in the UK, which includes uh, public protection. Uh, now, in March of this year, I was elected as the national chair of the Young Advisors, and their Young Advisors mm -hmm. are essentially a group of their advisors, um, roughly around 100 of us who are spread up and down the country, um, all of whom are either uh, academics uh, under the age of 30, um, people want CT issues, or potentially even former extremists or, or victims of town involved with the group. Um, and I was elected to lead that in March of this year, and I'm still, that's pretty much took up most of We have a number of different programs on the go. Uh, one of which has been resilience in you mentioned earlier, but also we do a lot of work engaging universities, um, trying to get people on campuses, just talking openly about these. It's harder than it would sound, actually. Um, as I'm sure you're familiar with as a professor, it can be a little bit, um, I don't want to sound crass, but a little bit timid sometimes about these issues. Certainly from an academic point of view, we don't mind talking about them. But when it comes down to, I think, things like radicalization, which genuinely mm -hmm. could be happening on our doorstep, um, as it you know really can affect anyone, we can sometimes be a, a little bit scared into silence. Um, and so one of the things that we're really keen to do is engage young people in universities um, and essentially get them simply talking about these issues. Now, we do that by having uh, essentially all the people on the panel are under 30 years old, and each panel is all comprised of lived experience. So we have an expert on there, um, but then alongside the expert, we'll have a survivor of terrorism, like myself, mm -hmm. a young person who's been in an attack, and a former extremist, someone who used to be a member of an extremist group but was de-radicalised. And we just have those three people talking about their lived experience, what happened to them. And essentially, it pretty much happens organically. You know, most of the discussion actually takes place after the panel has ended because you can't get anyone to leave the room because everyone comes yeah. up with questions. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's really quite, uh, quite a good sign because, you know, it, it means that, these people in the room feel comfortable with asking those questions. And I think at the end of the day, that's got to be the best first step. You know, if people feel they can ask these questions um, in, a, in a safe environment where they're not going to be judged, but they're also going to get an answer to the question, um, then often, you know, that's really beneficial because if they don't get those answers from an official source, from a source that can be trusted, that's verifiable, um, then often they'll go seeking those answers from 
less reputable sources, such as extremists or people who Mattel want to hear. Um, and of course, that's how the radicalization process starts. So it's keeping me busy, um, but it's very rewarding. And, you know, especially certainly while I fit in the bracket of young people anyway, I'm happy to offer my expertise while it's, yeah, while it's accepted. Yeah. So I love what you're doing. Uh, really kind of, it's similar to the restorative justice efforts. Uh, so like bringing victims and the perpetrators together. And also I like the idea of like former extremists and the uh, survivor of a terrorist incident. So it creates so much empathy, right? And understand not just the former extremist side, but also what happens. So this can happen. This could happen to me, my family, my loved ones, my community. So um, it seems a very effective way of, um, you know, dealing with radicalization. So my last question, um, uh, you know, is a kind of uh, a general question. So based on your experience and observations, and the kind of the trends overall, what are your major takeaways for preventing radicalization and counterterrorism? Big question, big question. Yeah. Um, in terms so this of is why takeaways, I put it at the end of our request. <laughs> yeah, there. you put it right at the end. Catch me out. Um, in terms of takeaways, do you mean sort of uh, issues at the moment, or how do we sort of the biggest things on the horizon, perhaps? Mostly kind of policy recommendations, yeah, for practitioners, okay. uh, for policymakers, you name it. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I, I certainly think that, you know, in the UK, we, um, you know, I, I'll, I'll say outright the fact that, you know, counterterrorism policy will never be perfect. Um, and certainly we, you know, we, we learn from our mistakes. And I think that is uh, the right thing to do. What I would say, however, is that, you know, there are often, um, certainly in the UK, you know, people who, who will simply uh, attack counterterrorism policy without even knowing what it is. Um, and simply on, on the basis of politics will attack, uh, uh, you know, aimed at protecting uh, people, especially young people and vulnerable people from radicalization. And the amount of people that I speak to who have, you know, little to no knowledge whatsoever prevent and of our our you know, our state-run programs to de-radicalize people is astonishing. And again, you know, that was something that I was guilty of before the attack. I had no idea what prevent was. I had no idea how counterterrorism worked. You know, my my only knowledge of counterterrorism was through films and, and you know, and, and TV shows. Um, and I think it still is for a lot of people. And it doesn't help because all people ever see is the hard edge. They see the, you know, the guns blazing, and the sort of the, the car skidding and people don't see the sheer amount of work that goes on behind the scenes. So I think we need to be more bold and more outspoken in simply telling people and um, telling people what steps you're taking to try and prevent people being drawn into that world. Um, because at the end of the day, they shouldn't have anything to hide. Um, you know, if, if this policy is working, if it's preventing attacks, if it's preventing people being drawn into extremism, good. If it's not, then let people criticize it and let those improvements be made. I'll be the first to say that as, you know, somebody's survived an attack. Um, now, one of the things that I 
I've been grappling with at the moment, actually, which I think is perhaps an interesting topic for us to leave it on. Um, and perhaps is something that, um, you know, I, I'm sure you, you can sort of take this away from here, debate as well, but also some of your, your listeners might want to think about is this issue of uh, young people in particular and the correlation between young people and radicalisation. Now, in the UK, there's been a lot of talk about this recently because um, there's been, particularly during, as we sort of left the COVID period and we've left the lockdown period, there's been a massive increase uh, in referrals to prevent programme from young people, um, particularly those under the age of 21, more so than any other bracket. But one of the things that I often grapple with is, is, the, is the debate between are we truly increase in the radicalisation of young people specifically, or are we just seeing that increase because those are the people we are most able to see those differences taking place in? Um, in the UK, you know, the Prevent programme receives referrals from schools, uh, care mm -hmm. workers, um, all of these public services that a child or at least someone under the age of 21 will have more face-to-face -face contact with. You have to think, you know, these kids are in school every single day. The teachers are able to notice changes in their behaviour and act on that. So are we seeing an increase in the radicalisation of young people? Are we simply seeing an increase in the reporting of these referrals in a case where, say, for example, with someone who is in their 40s or 50s, we don't have that data because there's no one to spot those differences. And I ask this question because it's something very close to my heart. The um, If we look at the attack 2017 in the UK, we had five that year. And, um, you know, for the, for, the, for the main attacks that people remember, um, Manchester, for example, um, mm -hmm. the attack on borough markets, these were all people in their sort of 20 to 30 age gap. Um, who presumably, you know, had been radicalised within the last couple of years. So they were in that young person bracket um, and they fit the sort of uh, stereotype of perhaps what we often see a terrorist of being, um, disillusioned, isolated socially and in that age bracket as well. Uh, and this was the same for the bomber at Parsons Green tube station who fortunately didn't manage to kill everyone, uh, kill anyone because his, his bomb uh, malfunctioned. But for the attack that I was involved in, the uh, attacker was, I believe, 53. And for the attack that occurred at Finsbury Park Mosque, attack, the attacker, I believe, was in his late 40s. And we often, I think, there's been a sort of collective blot on the fact of no one's really asked how these people were radicalised. Um, certainly you can chart with the guy who carried out my attack, uh, you can chart the sort of process that he did in and out of prison, and you can chart the radicalization that very clearly took place in prison. But this is why I often, uh, I often have this internal, I'd welcome any thoughts from yourself or, you know, after this, if any of your listeners raise anything. Um, around that debate, are we truly seeing an increase in the radicalization of young people? 
or are we simply more aware of the fact that they're being radicalized and is that same increase or say radicalization happening to other age groups as well and if so i guess the most linear uh question to ask after that is how do we reach and intervene in those who are being radicalized who aren't in the school system people who are in their 30s their 40s their 50s um how do we reach those people and how do we i guess de-radicalize those people as well that's the question i'd like to leave people with yeah so these are important questions and uh really kind of uh, need many people to think about it <clears throat> and find the answers yeah uh thank you so much travis um thank you for very much for the great conversation sharing your story and insights and also your important public service in prevention of um, radicalization. So this is a really critical issue. Uh, and hope to see you in our future occasions. Uh, thanks again. Have a nice day. Thank you.